The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we look at the future of space exploration and weigh the benefits of sending humans versus sending robot proxies. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Today, we've got another panel from the Skepticon track of Convergence 2016. There is space. There are robots. What more could you possibly want? Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Humans versus Robots Who Will Travel the Solar System panel. Uh, my name is Desiree Shell. I'm the host of Science for the People, a Canadian radio show, and I will be acting as your moderator for this panel. Uh, it is also being recorded, and as long as Kevin Eldridge saved me effectively, it will be uh, available for air shortly. So... I will introduce our panelists. We have Nicole Gallucci, who is an astronomer, who is also an assistant professor of physics at St. Anselm. An An Anselm. Anselm? <laughs> you, okay. you got my name, though, so that's better than everything. You trained me well. I know, woman. I know. Gallucci. I All love right. you, Desiree. I love you, too. In New Hampshire, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then we have Amy Shira Tatel. Hi. Was that? Did I it's, mangle it's it? Title like title. Book. Yeah. Good. Don't worry about it. I have okay. some really creative pronunciations of my name. Okay, and I'm sure you'll hear more. Yeah. Uh, and she's a space flight historian, focusing on all things Apollo era, and also a blogger, vlogger, author, speaker, general professional, space history nerd. She's the author of Breaking the Chains of Gravity. And Jason Tebow is a computer nerd and amateur space and science lover. His day job as systems engineer for a website hosting company involves automating hundreds of servers, which are almost like robots, so he is qualified for this panel. <laughs> Let's say that I am sure. <laughs> you have the tallest microphone. <laughs> And that Jim Tigwell writes on science fiction for Mad Art Lab and has a master's in philosophy with a thesis on stakeholder ethics. So what I was hoping we could do to start off to just give everyone some background is uh, give a bit of the, the history of human versus robotic space flight. And Amy, I'm depending on you for that. Right. Uh, I thought that was going to happen. So this is my little John Glenn in a Mercury capsule. It's my only prop. So go. Um, okay. So the history of humans versus robots in space. Um, I don't really know where to start with this one. The idea of putting things into space was something that scientists really wanted to do in the 1950s, but space was like a dirty word because it was for the crazies and the weirdos who like to do things like strap rockets to a chair and send themselves punting down the dry lake bed at Edwards Air Force Base, which was then called Murak Air Force Base. Um, but then Sputnik happened and the world changed and then it was like cool to like space. Um... And then everybody wanted to put men into space, like the Air Force, the Army, the crazies. Um, Not women, just men. Just Yeah, just mm. men. <laughs> we panel on that yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we discussed the national imperative is greater than gender equality. Um, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> so it became – the idea of putting men into space became an imperative because it was – spaceflight became an, an arena of the Cold War. So it wasn't just that it's about space exploration. It was about – one-upping the enemy. But on the side of sort of the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo sort of manned space program was also this really extensive uh, 
robotic space exploration program with the Ranger to the moon. Um, I forget off the top of my head, to be honest, the name of the Mars program that went at the same time. Um, and the Soviets also had the exact same, uh, going to the moon, going to Mars, going to Venus. Um, but no one really knew about that as much because it was so laser focused on getting the human side into space. Um, but really, while people were focused so much on the astronauts going to the moon, we saw the first ever pictures of Mars. We saw the surface of Venus. We started seeing distant planets. I mean, there was a lot of really amazing robotic stuff going on while everyone was kind of distracted by this outlet of the Cold War. So that I'll leave that. Is that a good context for no, the, where great. you want to go? Okay. I can do more if you need it. <laughs> I will call upon you throughout this panel. Okay. <laughs> so what I'd like to do... Uh, is basically I'm going to force you all to take position because this is humans versus robots. So you're going to actually take both positions. But to start, we're going to say, what are your best arguments for sending humans to space? Your best arguments. Sure. Um, so I am on the side of humanity. Um, for the reason of that humans are better at doing science. Um, so if we send a, uh, cure, you know, if we send the, the, we've all watched with rapt attention what spirit and opportunity and curiosity and, and, you know, those of us who were, who were younger and saw surveyor, not surveyor, um, Sojourner and Pathfinder, yeah. that was like my big one when I was a kid. Um, we watch them with rapt attention, but not a whole lot of other people do, but some of us do. Um, but uh, the experiments that they can do are limited by the technology and by what is actually on board the spacecraft. It's like, if you have a scoop, you can do scoops. If you don't have a scoop, you can't do scoops. Uh, you have a specific instrument packages. Uh, you have a delay time of, it varies, you know, from, you know, some number of minutes to some larger number of minutes. Um, the delay time between sending a command and actually having it do the command and then give you the result. So none of it's, there's, there's no real-time thinking process involved. Um, you can also compare the kind. So can't really come up with new experiments on the fly. Uh, can't go terribly far, actually, although you would think a rover could just kind of like do its thing. Uh, for an example, uh, one of the Apollo missions, uh, the astronauts traversed 22 miles across the lunar surface over the course of a couple days with the help of a rover, of course. Um, but it took uh, opportunity eight years to do that same distance. So you can get a lot more literal mileage. Um, and uh, more thinking on the fly and, and uh, new and exciting experimentation if you send a human as opposed to sending a robot. They just needed to give uh, opportunity the brain of a fighter pilot who just said, all right, screw it, let's go. That's what they needed. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, continue. I no, love that you have good. notes, by the way. We've been doing sweet donuts on the moon for five minutes now, and yeah. it's pretty great. Oh, no, there were, like, actually just donuts on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> So oh, I'm good. That's me. Okay. Perfect. That's my argument. More pro-human arguments, please. Okay. Um, do you want us to state our specific side now, or would you like us to hold off on that? Both sides. I, I want you to be both first. sides. Okay. We have, yes. So, I mean... Yes. First. Okay, just so humans. Human. So if we're going to go with humans... Um, I mean, to, to sort of piggyback on a lot of what Nicole just said, the I, the fact that humans can do the science so much faster. Um, I've got geology friends who also do geology on Mars. And it's really interesting uh, listening to them talk about how they have to figure out how to program a rover, how to program the software, upload it, make the commands, um, pick up a rock, have the rover look at the rock, 
store the data, send it back down, and then the data is interpreted. You take the same scientist that comes up with figuring out how to do that, programming it, doing the uplink. You've gone into the desert with these guys. They pick up a rock and say, huh, and then put it back down. They do what it takes a rover to do in a 24-hour cycle, half a second, because they know it. And if you really want to do good lots of science, I mean, imagine if we had a human on Mars for a decade, how much more science you'd be able to figure out, because you don't have to have everything be this 24-hour cycle of like, I pick up rock now, okay, I picked up the rock now, what do I do with it? Okay, I look at it, okay, you want pictures? Okay, let me let me do this for a while. It's the speed at which you can explore is just so much better when you have a human who can take in all the information that is important. Almost impossible, I won't say impossible, but to program into a rover. Uh, Jason? Well, uh, I mean, obviously the high points have been covered. Uh, this, it's pretty much impossible to expect that we'd be able to explore the far solar system uh, with the long lag times uh, and be able to react to novel situations that come up. Uh, as soon as something happens, if we can't react instantly, uh, we could lose our probe. Um, so having somebody out there who can actually improvise on the fly would be the best, uh, the best use, I guess, of the resources to get something out there. Uh, there's obviously arguments against it that, you know, that, that person might end up dead as a result of trying to find some scientific, uh, whatever, but science in absence of an actual human humanity presence, uh, it's fairly heartless. And if we were to entrust just robots, uh, whether automated or artificial intelligence or anything like that, uh, I feel as though that the heart is missing, like the actual intentionality, the drive behind trying to discover new things is absent there. And I feel as though it's important to have somebody who is morally culpable mm -hmm. doing yeah. the science out in space. I'm not a scientist, so I have a sort of a different perspective on that. And I, the, I think the best argument to send humans is humans are better storytellers than robots. I mean, we we have some robots and, and AIs that will write poetry and things like that, but there is something meaningful about spaceflight and space exploration to have a human being come back and tell you how it felt to be there and what that experience means to them. And I think that is valuable, especially we had a panel yesterday on the, on the, the sort of ways to fund space flight and the, the media issues around it. Mm. And what we need are those stories. We need, uh, you know, Sally Ride, Chris Hadfield. I mean, pick a name out of a hat. The people who have been there and seen it, it is real to them. And the things that they bring, the experiences they bring back are made real to us in a way that pictures and video, although majestic, can't give us. Can All I just right. add something to that? Just because mm. that's an interesting point. You guys know the famous Earthrise picture from Apollo 8? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you guys know what the first ever Earthrise picture looks like? Because it was taken by a robot and nobody saw it. Oh. It was really grainy. It's black and white. It was from about 1966. I The name of the mission right now, 
quite frankly, escapes me. But it's the exact same picture, just black and white. But there was no human story involved. Oh, wow. And no one knows that picture. But we all know the one that Bill Anders took in 68. Wow. So, yeah, there is, is a... confirmed? Aren't they still fighting about who took that photo? No, it was Anders. <laughs> but aren't they still fighting? No. <laughs> no, I've met them all, and they've not. <laughs> they say, they say Anders. Yeah. So, now that you have all stated your reasons for thinking humans should be in space. How about robots? Why should robots be in space? Humans are whiny. Mm. <laughs> Let's face it. I they need all that glitter. oxygen and all that food and like, oh my god. And they'll you have the to tuna poop. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> they might get food poisoning if their hunger overtakes their reason. Yeah, it's just, man, they're whiny as anything. Whereas robots, you know, they're pretty much, do, 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 do. Want me to take the picture now? Take the picture now. I liked your <laughs> doll. Take the picture now. Blink, blink, blink. Um, yeah, humans are whiny and need a lot. And when you're going to space, when you're escaping Earth's gravitational well, you need a lot of fuel to get that stuff up there. So this, the crazy amount of resources it takes to keep a human being alive, super expensive. Super, super expensive. Yeah. Sorry, I'm trying to find one of my favorite quotes from Kurt Vonnegut is exactly from this, from Hocus Pocus, and I don't think I'm going to find it in time. But he says something to the effect of, like, what's the point of putting humans into space? These are whiny meatbags who have massive amounts of defecation, who need so much food, who have to be coddled and cared for, when a robot can do the exact same thing, and if the robot dies, no one cares. I, I mean... It's, like, bleak, but unless, quite frankly. Unless they have a really good Twitter account. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, we've seen that happen. <laughs> it's true, it's true. Sarcastic that robot, Rover. Sarcastic Rover. Mm. The, uh, yeah, people got really sad. Do you see that that montage of Spirit's last days where, like, they faded yeah. out? It's yeah. so sad. The, the one that actually made me cry was um, Phoenix, um, which was sent to the Martian Pole, and as it froze and was covered in snow and ice and stopped working, like, whoever did that, I can't remember who did that Twitter account now. It was one of the first yeah, first the person first rover accounts, and oh, but I cried. People wrote poetry. It was <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so um, you can have that emotional maybe with a robot. Yeah. Okay. Wait. I think this might be. Hang on. Okay. Yeah. The mind is the only thing about human beings that's worth anything. Why does it have to be tied to a bag of skin, blood, hair, meat, bones, and tubes? No wonder people can't get anything done. Stuck for life with a parasite that has to be stuffed with food and protected from weather and germs all the time. And the fool thing wears out anyway, no matter how much stuff you protect it with. <gasps> Bodies are jerks. Yeah. It's wow. one of those things that, like, if we can put... If you can imbue a robot with the ability and the knowledge of a human, which is admittedly very difficult, that would be able to do so much more with so much less money than a human. <laughs> so being able to build an artificial intelligence that theoretically could have that sort of moral culpability as well as uh, improvisational skills... Uh, would let you create an object that's fairly expendable. I think I kind of worry about the ethics of creating an artificial intelligence with that level of intellect and then sending it out onto a mission where it's probably going to end up running out of resources in some way and then dying. Um, but at the same time, building another is okay. And mm, I don't know. I, I guess I could, I could argue that you could ask the AI if it's willing to do it. Um, but that would prevent having to put a, uh, an expensive meat bag out into space where it's probably going to die at the least little twitch. Um, I guess 
bracketing a whole conversation about AI and ethics that I'm really hoping we're going to have over lunch yeah, um, definitely. is uh, robots are the best way to pave the way to human success out there. I mean, even if you're, you're like forgetting AI, if you're programming them, they can send them places and have them build things, you know, habitats, antennas. I mean, not just pros, but, and, and you can, and Nicole's right. You can fire them out there for dirt cheap compared to humans. You just a big block of robot bits have it self self assemble like replicators. Yeah, ah, well, that's I mean, a ah. that's a bad we're, idea. We're but already sure. We're, let's do it. <laughs> we're no. We're already at the point. Where we're making three D printers out of three D printers. God damn it! <laughs> I I had an Uber driver once who tried to convince me for the hour I was stuck in traffic in Oakland that we needed one robot to build all the other robots and they would fix the other robots and then we would have no need to do anything at all. I jumped out of that cab so fast. Master Mole? (laughs) I don't know what he was on about, but it was just like, we need one robot and then the robot will build all the robots and then we won't need to do any work ever again and we'll need no money. I was like, so I don't have to pay you for listening to this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, uh, so that's the part I want to point out. And I know you've sort of mentioned it, but the, the fact is, is that no human lives are lost if you send robots out into the black. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. Does that matter? Mm. Ultimately, there's 7 billion of us. We're pretty expendable, too. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Sorry, we I are. I think it matters now because. I mean, from the from you know historian point of view, in the '60s, NASA was allowed to kill people because it was all about the national imperative of beating the Soviet Union. So when the Apollo One crew died, I mean, it was devastating and it was sad. But there were significant changes the spacecraft made, and 18 months later, we returned to flight. That didn't happen with the shuttle with Columbia and Challenger. And now, if NASA is the one, if it's a government organization that's doing this, the government can't kill anybody anymore. <laughs> Like, Elon Musk can kill whoever he wants, basically. But NASA can't. So it's sort of this, like, we're expendable, but it's very socially unacceptable to just, like, oh, we're going to do something cool. You might die. Sure. Oh, you died. Duh! Pitchforks! Ah! Although so, the, yeah. the astronauts themselves, when you they are interviewed after these major catastrophes, are like, yeah, no, I, it's still worth it. I'm still going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They get it, but the public who's funding it doesn't. Right. I think is the... That's, well, that gets into thing. a free will argument? Yeah, I had a friend who was, who was convinced that he could, with current technology, put a person on Mars, but it would be a one-way trip, and said that if he was willing to do it, he would actually ask people if they were willing, like if they had an interest in being in space, and that was their last wish, that's a good way of doing it, and you get some science back out of it. So you could not only fulfill somebody's last wish, but also get some science back. Just, I don't know if you can answer this question, but I've, so I've met a couple people who, uh, volunteered for Mars One. The one, the one way trip that's funded by, uh, reality TV ads. Funded. 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 Um, and they didn't know how far away Mars was. Like, they didn't actually have a concept of what it means to go to Mars. So I wonder that, like, because you're the one bringing up morals and ethics, which is something I never think about, which, what does that say about me? (laughs) (laughs) She's a lovely person, I promise. I deal with history. Um, What would be like sort of the ethical or the moral stance about saying, you know, we have a one-way trip, we want to send humans and get things back. Do you really understand what you're doing? 
Because at that point, it's like, when do you have, like, plausible deniability of, like, yes, I'm sending you to your death, and you don't actually understand that. H- have right. Them build a, have them, the informed consent. <laughs> how, have them build a scale model solar system, like, real scale model, like, the actual size of the planet and the size of the distance. That that blows people's minds. What, like, yeah. one to one? <laughs> That's going to take a lot of space. <laughs> yeah, it does. You can do it. No, you can do it. We used to do it out on a big really field in front one. of a school with oh, uh, Pumpkin like, is the Sun. No, not one to one. Sorry. But yeah. having, having the – because most scale models you see have, like, these big planets really close together. They, yeah. you know, either do the size right or they do the distance right. They don't do both. If you actually do it right, you know, you've got a pumpkin and then all the way across the, you know, length of the you school you have, like, Pluto or yeah, you have a pinhead for Pluto or something like that. There's a small town in middle America that do that. There's a, yeah, there's, there's a couple a of them. Somebody did it in a desert recently as an art project. Yep. Yeah, there's a couple of those. Yeah. So I think if you have someone construct that, um, I mean, I do this with kids and they, wow, really blows their mind. That would at least yeah. solve the distance problem. I don't know about the, <laughs> you're going to so, die on a so as the, as the ethicist on this panel, yeah. Please. <laughs> um, <laughs> the the I mean they they they're a stakeholder in in whatever involved involves that trip, and if you are exploiting their lack of knowledge in order in order even in order to further scientific progress, um, we would we would probably there are, there are very strong arguments as to why you should not exploit people sure. for. Mm-hmm. Not knowing things, but at right, what right, point right. can you say they know enough that they're responsible to make this yeah. choice? And the answer, I think, you 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 get it with uh, all kinds of astronauts. I saw four or five years ago, I, I was at a talk by Roberta Bondar, and she said the only, there's only three three dangerous parts to space travel. There's the part where you lift off, the part where you land, and everything in between. <laughs> <laughs> But we we have all kinds of roles now where people accept risk like, I mean, like like grave risk. And w- what we do is we make it as safe as possible. Everything from test pilots to um, emergency personnel to soldiers, um, you know, police officers, things like that. Like we these are these are people who accept a risk of dying as a consequence of their job. And not only are we are they are we fine with doing that uh, while endeavoring to make their job as safe as we can, but we we respect that deeply. I mean, astronauts are willing to put their ass on the line for a future that isn't even really sort of useful it's just important. Um, so there are people who will who will uh, volunteer to be isolated in uh, Antarctica, for instance, for a year at a time in a tiny shack by themselves. Um, but they have internet and things like that. Uh, I wonder if it's really possible to set up a real isolation experiment where somebody is stuck in a tin can for a year and a half before they're allowed to even touch down uh, that kind of scope. I'm not sure that we've really ever fully explored how resilient humans are to be able to do that. So we, we don't have totally a lot of have data. it's called prison. Okay. That's a, that's a fair point, but there is still, <laughs> there's still, you get a regular source of food and water. Your basic needs are taken care of. You mm-hmm. can talk to other human beings, even though they might want to shank you. Uh, Couldn't you make the argument that somebody in prison might have a bit of a different mental state 
who's, you know, killed a bunch of people than somebody willing to go to Mars? Mm -hmm. Or even someone who's just, you've been put there, you haven't chosen to be there. Are are we advocating for Space Australia to send all the criminals to Mars? I'm not. Actually, that brings me to to another question. So if, for some reason, this whole idea that, uh, no, we don't want the robots out there, we want the humans out in space, uh, and we want them to colonize someplace, for example, who are we sending there? Are we sending our best and brightest, like the, the folks that we expect to carry on our lineage? Or are we sending people who are disposable? Uh, we've already said on this panel that sometimes it doesn't matter. So who I know, this is recorded. <laughs> um, we said that. But, but that's my concern. If it, let's have that conversation. Who would we be sending out realistically? I, oh, go ahead. Somebody with really good DNA, because they're not, they're gonna get shredded by space radiation. <laughs> well, I learned, uh, yesterday on one of the panels that you need to send 10,000 of them to even get a viable breeding population, so, with that large of a number, it doesn't matter, I guess, but, uh, if you're sending a smaller group of explorers, you need to be more, uh, choose more carefully. And I think it depends on who is doing the sending, um, like if it's if it's a science mission funded largely by government for the sake of humanity, then it's kind of got to be. I would, in my opinion, it would have to be you know a whole bunch of human Swiss Army knives that can do surgery on humans and surgery on spacecraft and also till land and mm-hmm. also you know all the things. Mark but if Watney. You're, yeah, you basically need that. A whole bunch of Mark like, Watneys. Better. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking all Matt Damon's. Things. Just all the Matt Damons. Let's just clone Matt Damon and send a million of him out. But if you're a private enterprise and you're doing it because you're Elon Musk and you want a retirement facility, and I've I've come I've read this argument a few times, I think it's interesting. Elon Musk isn't going to want to go to Mars and then build his own stuff. He's going to bring worker bees to do it for him. So do we send it such that Mars and Earth become a new caste system where like only the wealthy get to go to Mars? Or if you're the worker population on Mars and then you're just a second class citizen and then third class citizens are the ones stuck on Earth? Like, at what point do you, is it for humanity versus like the ultimate and like, you can't sit with us? Mm-hmm. I think, and that's, I think that's the issue that comes up all the time with the best and brightest argument is anytime we try and take a selection of the sort of best and brightest of, of humanity, we're going to, vastly amplify all of the everyday structural inequalities that happen. Yeah, sorry to those of you who think that Galt's Gulch is viable in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) Aw, you just made 19-year-old me very sad. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the case. We're actually not, uh, if we do send our best and brightest, we're, we're... not doing the earth any favors for the folks that are still left here. We're taking mm-hmm. all the good ones, as it were. Yeah, if it's if it's for science, then the best and brightest, yeah, because you need the people who can do all that. But if it's for colonization... But, but let's think yeah. about this best and brightest <laughs> argument for a moment, because best and brightest usually means, you know, we're talking about someone capable of doing science and engineering. How many of our best and brightest uh, have, in the last just year, have been shown to be serial sexual harassers? 
Yeah. So yeah. you know, the, 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 there's there mm-hmm. are uh, some issues in in selecting as well. Again, this depends well, on the size of the population. But if you're dealing with a small population, you don't want a predator. Well, maybe we need to put them through mercury training so that they have to have two enemas a day for a week and see if they can put up with that. Maybe that'll. <laughs> wow, this got dark. Sorry, that makes way more sense if you were in her discussion yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> It's a joke. Yeah, sorry. The Mercury astronauts had to be like prodded to high hell because they had no idea what bodies, what would happen to bodies in space. So they were like every Basically orifice tortured. was was measured and quantified, including they had two enemas a day for like a week. So yeah, I feel like somebody who's has Still that kind of attitude yeah. <laughs> maybe wouldn't put up with that. So maybe that's just like a how would you maybe not? I don't know. Grad school kind of sucks, and they did that. <laughs> Just trying to figure out how to weed out the horrible people. But this, <laughs> yeah. this is the thing. If we can't be sure that we're we're sending the right humans out to do the right things, wouldn't that come down on the case for robots then? Why may, why take that risk? Because how are we going to build our best and brightest robots unless they're also going to be culpable for the same the same. Uh, they're going to be subject to the same level of scrutiny uh, as far as are you going to be a moral actor? Are you going to be uh, capable of working with other AI robots? Uh, are you a serial sexual robo harasser? You're just gonna just gonna get like in deep on the robot enemas right now? Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> Oil up. It's way up, too early for robot paper. enemas. <laughs> it's a phrase I never thought I would hear multiple enemas. times in a row. <laughs> Um, but at least with robots, you can have software updates. You can't really do a like attitude update to a human who's malfunctioning. But at that point, that's but basically like an attitude adjustment. Yeah. You'd be lobotomizing somebody remotely via yeah. firmware update. Yeah. I don't know. There's uh, a psychologist know. in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I think a little too much about AIs, I guess. Jim, you look pensive. I am pensive. <laughs> I. So part of me is... Uh, space travel is done by sort of by committee and the part of me that wants to tell stories about space travel and space exploration and space colonization is like it would be the worst thing in the world to send marketing people into space <laughs> like any any everything you already get from from astronauts is is sort of you know coached and edited and things like that but if you had a space colony and you were like, all right, now we need to tell people about life on this space colony, you would get a committee of people assembled so fast that would make it so boring um, that it would make me deeply sad. But the the my head says we send the people who need to go, um, the people who you know are sitting, the, the the kids who are who are sitting in the inner city schools looking up and knowing they need to get out. But, I mean, it is it is a way to provide people with incalculable opportunity. So send the people who space travel for a year and a half in a tin can would be an upgrade? Sure. I mean, okay. send, send people who, who, who feel like they need to go. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same... Kinds of things that, ooh, I'm a Canadian and I'm I'm in America and, um, but uh, military recruitment happens a lot in 
low-income neighborhoods uh, in Canada as well as, as as well as here, where we have vastly less people. Um, and, and, yet, but we, and yet, this panel is four fifths Canadian. Four well. Canadians, and one American. <laughs> yeah. We're outnumbering you here, but generally, <laughs> there's a distribution problem. Yeah, small numbers. But um, it's it and it. And, but and there's there's a whole bunch of structural problems with that. But at the same time, the notion is that this is a thing that everyone needs to commit to, and it is a thing that everyone should have the opportunity to do. Um, and what that means in terms of the military is grueling training and hardship and you know bonding and weird masculinity culture and. But and it would I think it would mean the same kind of thing for for astronauts. But I think the people you want to you want out there are the people who, you know, the stars are the first person they ever broke up with, and they're always going to miss them. Okay, so send send the people who are looking up lovingly at the stars, uh, who need to get away from a really bad situation. Um, we bootstrap them into the knowledge that they need to be able to be a proper colonist and then we put them all together yeah i mean maybe it takes 20 years to, t- to train a colonist how long does it take mm. to train a fighter pilot right right okay that's i think that's viable what do you guys think of that the scientists on the end <laughs> <laughs> well i mean my my i did have a thought um that you know that kind of training uh hasn't ruled out harassment in the military either certainly not but um 20 years of training for a lifelong mission sounds about right yeah i don't i've never really to be honest thought about it in those terms but like yeah yep i got i'm sorry i got up i'm like i'm just like trying to think through that right now but i think it's yeah when are when are you ready to do something like that when are do you have the skills and when are you mentally like in the right position to start doing that. I don't know. I, I don't have I kids, like- I, but I've been told that being a parent, you're not actually ever ready for it. Just like, oh, God, there's a baby, no matter how much you try and prepare. And I think it's being a colonist. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, I feel like being a colonist would be like that. Yeah, I feel You're like never really ready. You just do it. You're, you're not ready. You're just you're, you're ready to take whatever is thrown at you, and then you're sort of ready to roll with it. I feel like but in any random distribution, you're going to have the problem people, though. If you yeah. take any random distribution of people who, for whom space is an escape from the hardships of Earth, uh, you might have some people who their formative years were filled with uh, hatred and malice, and that might shape them. Or you might end up with people who uh, were just economically disadvantaged, for whom they've always been, you know, the the person who could make a rocket ship out of bubblegum scotch tape. So you're going to send them MacGyvers. Um, but in it, in that distribution, that's still made up of just regular plain old humans. And we all have, uh, in any random room, there's going to be somebody that, that might have done something really awful to some other human being. And that's going to happen in space too. So you can't really avoid that no matter what population distribution you try to grab. I agree. I can confirm that 100% of the people you send into space will be people. Yes. <laughs> so maybe it's about finding out like the right level of fallibility in the people we send. Like you don't want to send a murderer or a serial harasser, but like, 
who is good enough? Yeah, like, <laughs> Maybe yeah. it's like, let's split the difference, guys. Let's just figure out who's... Eh, you're not the greatest, but you'll do. There's too, many <laughs> ac- there's too many axes, though. Yeah. On that graph. That's like an N dimension yeah. space where N is really large. I mean, you just do what you can and then <laughs> uh, fix the problems as they come up, as far as I can tell. Yeah. That's so, the best I could So I'm wondering then, so if we, if we decide, you know, humans colonizing is a good thing for whatever reason, to what level of exploration do we use just the robots to get to that point? I'm sorry, this is your job. No, but. no, 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 no. That's, nope, you're getting there. That's it's the perfect. thing I just came up with. Yeah. Um, like, is there a compromise somewhere there? Or are there Ooh, stages? Yeah. If where we can we're, find some way to upload a human brain into a robot body and then send that robot body out and have regular backups sent back to Earth so that we could get that back. I mean, sure, uh, that's kind of singularity level technology. Do you want Skynet? That's how you get Skynet. <laughs> I kind of want Skynet. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think the idea of sort of a, a multi-pronged approach to this with with robots doing a lot of the heavy lifting and being very involved in the process would probably in my again, not I haven't really thought too much about that one, but um that seems like it would make a lot of sense because then you're not putting all the onus on the humans to do all the problem solving. It would probably I imagine help the human interaction bit. For, and kind of smooth things out if you can delegate to robots. So maybe, and maybe I'm coming back to this as I'm talking and thinking out loud. Sorry. Um, so Canadian. Um, mm-hmm. the idea of sort of the cat, the problem of the caste system with the rich going to Mars and bringing the worker bees. What if it's just scientists going to Mars and their worker bees are robots? And then that kind of negates the issue of like power and dominion over another portion of the population because it is a robotic population that sort of helps helps ease that transition into colonizing a planet maybe that is a very ill-formed thought i apologize well, that, that, that's kind of the idea of um uh having humans and robots work to, i mean they've been testing this in a very small capacity on the international space station with robonaut yeah which so cool. looks like a human yeah. um and 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 it's it's not you know anywhere intelligent but it is um, kind of a, a worker drone helper bee thing for you know it it looks humanoid um, it you know all the all the you know very intricate tools that you need to do work on the space station or on on or well I guess not shuttles anymore whatever um, you know we're designed for human hands and the gloves so they designed this robot to look articulated like articulated hands yeah articulated hands in the spacesuit um, to work alongside the humans so there's at least a little bit of thought already going and, in that direction. And I wonder if somebody has any thoughts on the psychology of that. Like, Robonaut is very humanoid. I met one of the trial ones once, and it's like, it really does feel like a human. If that if that is a thing that would help ease that sort of working between humans and robots, to have it be humanoid, that you feel more like you can trust a robot who, who looks like you. I don't know. I don't know. I'm scared I, of robots anyways. <laughs> after having thought as much as I have about AIs, uh, I kind of find the humanoid AIs to be every bit as or even more creepy because they end up in the, that uncanny valley. Yeah. Of, they're kind of like a human and they might also have the entire internet in their brains and I don't want to meet anybody like that. <laughs> and even just conventional, so like sort of conventional robots, um, I don't know that having it be human shape helps me. But it's mostly because, so I work in software, and it's not the hardware that's the problem. <laughs> I'm worried about the software. I mean, in the same way that I'd be worried about, you know, like I'm concerned about working with like a machine press or something. Like, if I 
put my hand yeah. in a wrong place. I mean, ideally, robots are, are smarter, but software has bugs. Mm-hmm. So, keep my hand out. It, it might uprise. <laughs> up. That's why if a humanoid robot has a bug, will it just, like, you know, crush, kill, destroy? <laughs> That's the I, default I robot human, BIOS, is my understanding. Yeah. Human Humans have bugs. So. Yeah, and true. And that just... I have a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so I thought humans was winning here, and then I thought robots were winning. And now, who's winning? That's a very American concept. I am in America. (laughs) When in Rome. Why does everything have to be a competition? Says the New Yorker. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we we have some questions. We'll be back with more from the Humans vs. Robots Convergence panel conversation after this. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People, where we've been playing a panel we recorded during the Skepticon track at Convergence 2016, titled Humans versus Robots, Who Will Travel the Solar System? Now, before anybody responds, um, I, if you wouldn't mind rephrasing the comment for the benefit of our listeners. Uh, so just to, to recap what you just said, uh, humans are fallible. And if you get to a situation where you need novelty and uh improvisational skills then you've already failed because humans are not necessarily going to make the right decision and in fact very often make the wrong decision in those situations i agree with that completely but at the same time i feel as though if you've reached that point with a robot without artificial intelligence then you've got zero return you've you've done nothing at that point uh you've hit a situation where you have not anticipated what needs to be done in that situation. And so the robot does nothing. So maybe picking up the wrong rock or putting down the rock was the wrong decision, but a worse decision was not even knowing there was a rock there. Um, so I, I, I'm sort of back and forth on that. Uh, I get that you could theoretically make things significantly worse for your endeavor, by having a human make a wrong decision, but inaction is sometimes a wrong decision too. So I was thinking um, of the symbiotic relationship between humans and robots, as you were saying that, um, imagining that you get to that situation and, you know, crappy human brains that do stupid things <laughs> wants to make this decision and the robot helper though not you know maybe not on the level of ai intelligent you know separate sentient being you know does give you this but this is the result that you should do this is the optimized parameter because you know they the computer's really good at doing a whole lot of things and it can run models and give you an answer and that's against what your gut reaction is say and say your gut's wrong uh that happens um, will the humans working with the robots have the humility to say, I'm going to trust the model's results um, and not do the Captain Kirk thing I want to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, also <laughs> Mos- 
I mean, I mean, the, we we have this, we've been operating sort of on this notion that that humans who are on another planet will be alone, um, in the, and they might be in the sense that they're the only ones there, but in the same way that you're when you when you're in a spacecraft uh, like the ISS or something, you are not alone. There's a there's a ground team of people monitoring everything you are doing, and they are mustering any experts they need to to be in a position to offer advice. So you're not. Uh, I mean, when you're walking around a, 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 on Mars looking at rocks, it's not just you, the geologist. It's 30 geologists in a room watching it on a huge screen going, <laughs> Katie, pick up that rock. Okay, just, just go back. Just, it's like, it's like, but there's like an hour delay. delay. It's like mm. geologist Twitch chat. But there's like an hour long yeah. delay. Yeah. Like if someone doesn't text you back immediately, God, come on, text me, text me, text me. Because <laughs> at, at that point, you're not really in a better position than the rover who's sort of like, I see a rock. What do you want me to do with this? Mm. Okay. So point? it's sort of like, I mean, it worked. That was definitely a thing on the moon because the light time delay is like, what, 0.3 seconds or something? Yeah, like, as soon as you get farther So, out. you know, you've got, you've got, I mean, the one geologist, Jack Schmidt on 17, had all the <laughs> back Jack. room of geologists and that made a lot of sense because they could see it in real time. But on Mars, you wouldn't have that. So you'd need the human to be that jack of all trades, but also wait for the committee. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you'd, uh, it's, but not in an emergency. Yeah. There's sort of, I don't know. To fix the human, <laughs> to fix the human problem, you'd have yeah. to be able to to, human. to send back and forth information yeah. instantly, uh, faster than light communication, mm-hmm. so that you'd still have all of the resources of all of the humans on Earth, yeah. uh, in real time. That is not this panel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's too early Let's for faster than physics. light. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, a bunch of non physicists. Well, so the hybrid approach uh, he, he's suggesting is to have humans in orbit around Mars and all of the drones on the surface um, reacting to that human's commands. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was. Uh, do you want? No. Oh, so I was just gonna say that, like, that's that's a compromise that I've talked to a lot of my Mars working friends about as like the best next step in terms of exploring and looking at maybe colonizing down the line because then you kind of don't have to fully deal with the challenges of landing humans on Mars, which we just don't have the money to figure out right now, um, and don't have to necessarily have it be like, oh, Lord of the Flies on Mars edition. Um, but you have... I mean, it, 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 <laughs> Lord of the Flies above Mars, <laughs> even better. Um, but, you know, if you're in orbit for two years and then they can come home, but they still have the real-time uh, real interactions with the rovers on the surface, they can see it because there's no light-time delay between the surface and orbit, but then you still have the benefit of being able to communicate with home if you need to. Mm-hmm. That sort of, to me, is like, that should be the next step. And that has been really? seriously and proposed, I, I but I think that it's... Idea. <laughs> It's hard to convince people that we're going to go all that way not to land. Like, yes, we know that the cost of the rocket fuel to get them off the surface of Mars yeah. is ridiculous, and that's why we'd want to do it. But if you're doing this with public funding, yeah, convincing it's... people we're going all the way there not to land, I think, is a tricky issue. But scientifically, you, sure. it makes sense. If it costs you $10 billion to get somebody into orbit of Mars, what's and then five? What, what's another $18 billion <laughs> to put them on the planet? Now you're thinking like an American. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Throw all, all good money after bad. <laughs> 
Yeah. We're right there at the finish line. Thank it just you. takes another twice as much as we spent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's what it's one of those things that like you can yeah, people don't like going all that way and not doing it all the way. I mean Apollo eight's a great example when they were just like, We need to just go and they're like, Well, we need to go into orbit at the very least and everyone yeah. was like, No, they're gonna die and then they didn't die, but people were sort of like, That's awesome. But you didn't land. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I, I don't want to land on Saturn. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> the comment was Titan. that Titan and Europa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are where I want to go. I want to go to Titan. The comment because... was that we're Mars centric. Oh yeah, so. sorry, we're being very Mars centric. What about Ceres? Ceres is awesome. It has water. Um, Titan mm-hmm. is cool because the atmosphere is like one and a half times our our atmosphere. So with like Land, a, so a flight easily, suit, you could like yeah. fly. You could fly with like wings on Titan because of the atmospheric pressure. Sorry, that's really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that seem to be escaping here is the incredible vastness of space and how much time it takes to get anywhere. That's why human beings don't live that long. It takes a very long time to get anywhere in space with our current technology, and human beings don't live that long. That's why pilots are going first, because they don't die. Right. So so I I was on the New Horizons Mission to Pluto team. I'm one of the... uh, communicating people to the world, not the science people. Um, and I, it was really interesting. I kept meeting people. They're like, oh, yeah. So so did they, the astronauts launched and they're already there? It's like, no, no, no. It takes nine years to get to Pluto. There's not just like a person curled up in there hibernating. No. Like the <laughs> distances people. out there are just so obscene that it's really hard to make. I mean, again, this is the problem of like people volunteering to go to Mars don't really understand that it's a two-year journey mm-hmm. of like – you can't go outside and go for a walk in those two years. So bring it's, a book. <laughs> so I've, I've seen a lot of people speculating about, like, could we put people into, like, hibernation sleep or something so that they don't get sick? They don't, like, whack their head and knock themselves out and get a brain aneurysm or something. Like, how do you keep people safe before they get to the planet? Yeah. I mean, barring all the radiation issues that we know about, like, people are kind of stupid. Like, you know, case in point. Safe and safe. Insane. Oh God. Yeah. The, the, I mean, I am not a psychologist. So the issue is safe and sane. Um, I'm not a psychologist in any way, but I always find this to be one of the most interesting issues because the Mars 500, I know we're back to being Mars centric. Sorry guys. Um, the Mars 500, which was that, uh, European space agency, like 500 day experiment of a simulated Mars mission. Um, these guys knew, uh, you know, the, the communications delay lengthened like it would on a real mission, but these guys knew that if a fire broke out in their habitat, they weren't going to die. Like, you have that knowledge that you are safe on Earth. I really don't know how people are going to simulate the reality of being 30 million miles from home and pick the right mentally sound people to not freak out. So this is why I keep going to AIs, but I'm afraid other. that they're probably going to go, you know, they're going to go <laughs> HAL 9000 on you too. <laughs> Couldn't you just program them to like not have a freak out program? <laughs> so, to give you guys a, a scale, I, I like to make little pretend scale models um, in my class. Um, so for just to give you a visualization, uh, if the earth is a ping pong ball, the sun would be maybe about half the size of this room. Uh, and I don't know mm. how big the hotel is, but you know, I have, I have the example on my tiny liberal arts campus. So if you imagine the size of a tiny liberal arts campus, it's a little bit bigger than that, right? Ping pong ball, this room. Um, so we're just talking about the solar system. Um, beyond that, you get to the Kuiper belt, um, is m- most of New Hampshire. If this room was the sun, most, <laughs> I said, this is very centric to my campus from my classes. I've done this for several universities now. Um, 
Now to figure out where the next, to, to get the next star on that scale, if you shrink the sun down to the size of a pin, pin, to a ping pong ball, so the solar system is like, you know, atoms or whatever, um, the closest, next closest star, next closest ping pong ball, let's see, I have the distance between New Hampshire and Indiana. Two ping pong balls. New Hampshire and Indiana, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of space we're talking about just to the next star. So and for the Canadians in the room, that's like that's like Nova Scotia to <laughs> middle of Ontario. Thank, Thank you, you, man. I really appreciate that. Thank I had you. no idea. <laughs> I, saw, I, saw, I have it set up for Virginia and New Hampshire, the two places I've taught this course. Uh, Indiana, the square one? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, at least the Canadians in the room are laughing at that joke. Anyway, <laughs> um, do we have other questions? I would say that needs yes, and you'd need even a third thing, which would be um, like emotional stability. Mm-hmm. Be the question. Just rephrase. Question. Oh, sorry. Um, wow, I sound like you guys. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Um, so, uh, asking, what would you, if you're talking about colonization, what do you um, need to factor in more? Is uh, are they good breeding stock? How healthy are they? What's their DNA like? Uh, sorry, I, I'm sorry. I was giggling at your phrase of good breeders. <laughs> and uh, the other, sorry, the other one was their intellectual capacity. So which one do you care more about? Um, and yeah, I, yeah. I'd In, say that that and emotional emotional stability. stability. I think would be not only being able to do a, a wide variety of things, but being able to do all those things. And keep a cool head, I think, is actually more important. Because if you're if you're clever, you can figure things out. If you're super intellectual but don't have human skills, have panic like, attacks. Like what what use are you if things go bad? So I think it needs to be more than anything emotional intelligence. Um, I do need to parameterize this somewhat in that the breeding stock question is really only relevant if you're talking about a generation ship to Alpha Centauri or wherever, uh, or yeah, it'd be multi-generation. It's yeah. four light years away. Yeah, I have no. Yeah, uh, ten, ten light years. Something uh, I it's, forget. It's uh, four point three. Four point three. Okay. Uh, so we're talking about so these are vast distances. Like this isn't just a trip down to the corner store that is Mars no, two years Indiana. away. This is Indiana, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is from. I don't even know where Indiana I is. Know. I don't know where we are right now. <laughs> um, I don't so yeah, unless you're going to colonize something, breeding stock really doesn't enter into it and there's also the question of what genetic traits are actually going to be important for your specific colonization so um, we're talking about eugenics in space now. <laughs> yeah basically right. basically we're gonna space Jim, seed. We're gonna play, we're gonna i also think that we're we are Nazis. we are without even mentioning we are bracketing a huge discussion about um disability mental illness mm-hmm. and and queerness in not i mean i mean in the sense right, that, that you're you, if yeah if you're focused on breeding where does that put queer people in space colonization well emily and fink and i are, already decided it's going to be just where somebody from the audience gave us it's just going to be women and a whole bunch of tubes of sperm <laughs> yeah i was at that panel sure there, okay <laughs> i feel like that's equitable <laughs> that's, yeah, that's fair, fair. the yeah. sperm get a chance to go up <laughs> but like it's, it's, especially in context like, like um, <laughs> mental illness and 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 disability, I think are, are things that really come up. Is is if you're in a position where, and I am not in any way qualified to comment on this, um, but if you're like, like if we're trying to 
move space colonists to a position where what matters is that your mind does the work, then your your mind is going to be really important, um, which ideally means that w- we don't we don't we're going to be privileging about, the neurotypical. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. we're 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 privileging we're privileging neurotypical people. We're uh, privileging able-bodied people, and if we're especially if we're colonizing. That means we're we're excluding people in a radical way, even before getting into the conversation about eugenics. It's just that how many how many arms you got? This line or that line? <laughs> right. I, I would say that this is another case for doing the best we can with the sample that we can get and trying for diversity because diversity of genetics and diversity of viewpoints are going to be actually really important. Um, And so that does mean uh, being willing to provide the infrastructure that people with, say, generalized anxiety disorders like myself would be willing to... Go team. Right on. Go team. Um, (laughs) Three-fifths of the panel. (laughs) Yes, we're all kind of a little neuroatypical. So you'd have to provide the infrastructure that these people – because we have value in society too, and we would probably all make really excellent people to throw up into space for various reasons. Um, I'm really good with computers, and that would be valuable in a computerized society. So the fact that I have this neuroatypicality does not mean that I have nothing of value to offer or that I cannot make a fully informed decision to go to space. Mm-hmm. So I think that diversity of neuro, neuro uh, shaping and diversity of genetics and diversity of viewpoints and diversity of ideals and even of different countries for different cultures is actually important to be able to build a viable colony because if you just have the cishet white men who know a little bit about particle physics that's not going to build you a colony well and i think this is one of the reasons that maybe a certain segment of the population is just promoting robots just robots because the rest is really hard and it yeah, depends on the, the size and scale of the mission. If you're going for a colony, you have a large number of roles to fill. And not every single thing you do is life or death. Um, so there may, so I, as someone with generalized anxiety disorder, um, I can't imagine myself on a shuttle mission with seven, you know, where it's just a crew of seven because I would have to manage my anxiety on top of the five jobs I have on this seven person crew in this very mm-hmm. complicated spacecraft. But for a colony situation, I could fit into that um, you're not on all the time in the way that they are on the shuttle, on the space station. Um, so by having a larger mission, you do make that room. For it, more takes it takes a village. It takes Just send a village into space. <laughs> yeah. It takes a village to build a village. <laughs> and we are unfortunately out of time. Thank you very much for everyone who came today. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That was our recording from the Skepticon track at Convergence 2016, which took place in Bloomington, Minnesota. Thanks to all our wonderful panelists, everyone who showed up to watch it live, and for the organizers of both Skepticon and Convergence who made it all happen. Just before we go, a reminder that we are still looking for guest hosts. If you want to try your hand at guest hosting for Science for the People, send us a little sample. 
Record yourself doing an interview on a science or intersectionally science topic you think would be in our roadhouse. Make it no longer than 10 minutes and send us an MP3 using our Dropbox, which you can access at scienceforthepeople.ca slash volunteer. Don't forget to include your name and your email address in the recording so we can get in touch with you. Don't worry too much about sound quality or editing. Use a Skype call recorder or your phone's voice memo app in a quiet space and send us something rough. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Schell. <laughs>